Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text today's message comes from the Old Testament reading of Job, as you heard a few moments ago. You may be seated. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, last week we heard the beginning of the story of Job, how God had said to Satan, have you checked out my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, blameless and upright, fears God and turns away from evil. Satan then took away Job's livestock, his animals, and all of his family, except his wife and his life, in order to have Job sin, to curse God. And Job said, Whatever comes my way, whether God gives or takes away, I will say, blessed be your name. So he doesn't curse God. We then connected that to us. Whether or not God says the same thing about us to Satan. You know, have you considered my servant? Fill in your name there. And even though we may not be blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil because we are sinners, sinners who deserve death and hell, that Jesus came along as the only perfect, blameless, upright one who does fear God and turns away from evil. And then he dies in our place to bring us forgiveness, to give us heaven, to make us alive, to give us the gift of faith by the power of the Holy Spirit through the word, so that in him we are blameless and upright in God's eyes. And so that whatever comes our way, whether God gives or takes away from us, we can say, blessed be your name. And by faith, you can say for the rest of your lives that when God calls you home to heaven, he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share your master's happiness. So today, you still get to be like Job, a good and faithful servant, because God is at work in your life. And today we see that after Job loses his livestock and his children, the same situation happens again. God says to Satan, hey, have you checked out my servant Job? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited him against me to destroy him without reason. Satan then responds to God with, well, stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. God says, okay, try and get him to sin. Just don't take his life. And what does Satan do? He strikes Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And I don't know if you can fully envision how bad that is. I mean, we've seen some skin diseases before, like leprosy. But try and imagine something being so painful all over your body, so itchy, that in order to try to bring some soothing upon yourself, Job, he takes a piece of broken pottery, 
to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. Now, what's also interesting to note here is Job sitting in these ashes. And I think there's three options to what this signifies. The first is that this is representative of grief or mourning. We saw this in the book of Esther with Mordecai and the others when Haman convinced the king to destroy, wipe out the Jews. I think that this one is certainly a possibility for Job, especially since he's lost his children. And the second is that this is representative of repentance, being sorry for your sins. You come before the Lord this way, covered in ashes. Now, I would say that this probably isn't correct for Job at this point, since Job doesn't think that he's sinned. He doesn't think that he's done anything wrong. He hasn't cursed God, doesn't think he's done anything to deserve all of that's happened to him. The third option, which might be the saddest of all, is that Job is sitting in the exact place where his livestock and his servants were burned up. Maybe even looking upon the collapsed house where his children died. Combine that with the ashes of mourning as well, and you could imagine why his wife, the only time we hear her speak, is very encouraging to him and says, curse God and die. Because your children are dead. Your servants and animals are dead. And now you're covered in sores from head to toe. Just get on with it already and curse God. Blame him because he is the cause of all of this suffering. While we might think about the commitments spouses have to one another, you know, in sickness and in health, till death parts you, I'm not sure how supportive his wife is in all of this. Even though we must remember she is also going through the loss of her children. And it is Job who is being tempted to curse God, who is the blameless and upright one, not her. So, Today, we'll give her a pass for responding in that way. And maybe that's why Job says she speaks foolishly, because she should receive from God both good and evil. And certainly, this is not a time of receiving good, and she's not receiving it very well either. And in this, still, Job did not sin. He did not curse God. Now, this doesn't mean that Job doesn't sin at all. In fact, he does. He believes that his good works should merit God's favor and not suffering. And as a result, he believes that God is not being fair and just with him because he is upright and blameless. And when he is brought to the truth from God, he does repent in dust and ashes. While he doesn't curse God as Satan tried to get him to do, Job still does fall in the end. And after Job repents, as you saw, God restores him. He restores him with livestock and children, and he lives to see four generations of his family dying an old man, full of days. It's one of those things where we look at our lives and probably want the same, right? Who doesn't want to live a life where we get to see our children grow up and our children have children? 
And then on the last day to look at ourselves and say, man, I have lived a full and satisfying life. Well done, you. Except if we're going to look at the story of Job and compare ourselves to him, we need to think about the suffering that first takes place. And there are plenty of you sitting here today that have gone through way more suffering than I have, that have gone through things similar to Job, the loss of a child, the loss of a spouse, the loss of your health, the loss of your stuff. And sometimes you might think to yourself, especially as it piles on one thing on top of another, on top of another, you might say to yourself, how much can one person endure? How much suffering can one person go through? When will it end? And you probably don't want someone coming in and telling you, well, you know, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. You also don't want somebody saying, you know, this is probably a good uh, learning, growing moment for you. God is pouring out his love for you. Didn't you know that? Even though you can't really tell right now. And I know that the last thing you want to hear is, hey, this builds character, but here it is anyway. And you certainly don't want someone to say that the cause of your suffering is, you know what it actually is? It's sin. You know, the reason that we all go through this suffering is because sin has ruined everything, ruined everything in all creation. And so people suffer, and people die, and spouses die, and children die, and it's because of sin. And as we suffer, we may be tempted to sin. Your suffering might be so bad that you want to take a page out of Job's book and from his wife and curse God and die. And of course, when we think about cursing God in our world today, we might associate that with the second commandment, taking the Lord's name in vain. I mean, it can be easy to blame God for our suffering, that he is the cause to want to say all kinds of terrible things to him. To take his name in vain. I mean, if we didn't blame God for all of our issues, all of our problems, all of our suffering, if we didn't misuse God's name, if people didn't take Jesus' name in vain, you know that we'd never learn that Jesus, that God's real first name is Oh My? We'd also never learn that Jesus' middle name is H. Certainly, Satan wants you to take the Lord's name in vain. He wants you to curse God. He wants you to stay in your sin. He wants you to stay in unbelief. And then he wants you to die. So that in your unbelief, you are in hell with him. Because there's no other place that he wants you to be. And that's what Satan, the deceiver, the accuser, the father of lies, the one who has already been condemned, that's what he wants for you. To be condemned to hell along with him. 
which is, which is why it's possible that Satan is the cause of your suffering. And God allows it to happen to test your faith, to see if you will curse him, if you will turn your back on him, if you will fall away from him in unbelief. God does not want you to fall away. That's why in your sin, in your temptation, in your suffering, while you are weak, while you are ungodly, God shows his love for you by having Jesus die for you. Job lost his children unwillingly. God the Father gave up his son willingly. Christ suffered all things for you to save you, to give you forgiveness, to give you salvation, to give you hope. That's where your suffering leads, to hope. Hope not that your suffering will end, because there's no promise from God that your suffering will end on this earth. There's no promise that God is going to restore you like Job. That he will take away your pain and suffering. That he will bring your life to even greater than it was before. There's no promise for those who have gone through the loss of children that you will be given more children. God's promises to you are not that you will be blessed on this earth. His promises to you are that if you give up your life, if you lose your life on this earth, if you sacrifice your life for God, for his will, in faith, then you will actually save your life in the life to come. God's promise for you who believe is eternal life. It's all of the blessings of heaven, not a successful blessed life on earth. And even though we go through suffering, and oftentimes we feel alone, we feel isolated in our suffering, we're not alone. Because God is always with us. But sometimes, it's easy to think that God isn't there. That he doesn't care about us. That he is actually the cause of our suffering. And we don't really want to hear from him saying, hey, this builds character. So sometimes God places people in our lives so that we're not alone in our suffering. When we look at Job, even though his wife may not have been the most supportive, he does have three friends who come to him to show him sympathy, to comfort him. And for those of you who have gone through suffering, you are better equipped to show sympathy and comfort to those who suffer. But if you haven't gone through suffering in your life, maybe you can learn a little bit from Job's friends. The first thing is that it's okay to grieve with those who grieve. You don't have to try and be strong for them, put on a brave face. You don't have to hold back your emotions. Job's friends came and sprinkled dust on their heads. That's a sign of grief. They share in Job's mourning as he sits in ashes. They take a page out of Romans and they weep with those who weep. 
They try and put themselves in Job's shoes and sympathize with him, comfort him, understand his suffering. The second thing you can learn from them is that it's okay to not say anything. They sit and do not say a single word for seven days and nights, which is the normal period of mourning. Now, I know some of you, when you're with your friends, can't go seven seconds without saying a word, let alone seven days. So it might be hard. But these friends waited for Job to initiate the conversation. Now, if you read through the whole story of Job, you'll note that the friends, they don't always get everything right. They tell him that his sin is what has caused his suffering and he needs to repent of it. Which, of course, Job believes is incorrect. So even though they can be supportive, they can try and comfort and sympathize, they don't always do the right thing, say the right things. They don't always know the right answers. They may get it wrong. And so the same goes for you, too. You may think about someone going through suffering, and you don't know what to say. And you don't know what to do. But let me ask those who have gone through suffering, those who have gone through loss, you don't actually have to answer this, but I'm speaking to you. Would you rather have friends that try to be supportive and get it wrong? Or a friend who is concerned with getting it wrong and does nothing? And offers no support. My guess is, the majority of you, if not all of you, would say that you'd rather have a friend that got it wrong than a friend that did nothing. You'd rather have a friend that at least was there and made the attempt rather than a friend who was not there and made no attempt. And maybe there's some comfort that you can take in the moments where you don't know what to say or do. As God the Holy Spirit helps us when we don't know what to pray for, I think God can help us be supportive to those who go through suffering. Help us find the words to say. Help us find the right actions to take. Even though in our imperfection, we may not always get it right. In fact, there's only one who has ever gotten it right. The right words, the right actions, at the right time. That person who died and rose. And it's a good thing that he is on our side to walk with you in your suffering as one who has walked where you have walked, been where you have been, to the one who has been just like you, who knows what it's like to be with you, to be, to be like you, to be tempted like you've been tempted, to suffer like you've suffered, to walk in the valley of the shadow of death like you, and to lead you out of the darkness of death, out of the darkness of suffering, out of the darkness of sin, and into his marvelous light. 
into his eternal light as the one who is the light of the world and who is the way, the truth, and the everlasting life. Amen. Now the peace of God which passes all understanding. Guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.